Let's go before the Lord again. Lord, uh, first this morning, before we climb into your word, I want to pray for another church in our area. Um, I want to pray for the village, and I want to pray for Matt Chandler. And uh, Lord, we want to lift up his health. That's uh, at the forefront of a lot of people's, including theirs, their own mind right now. And Lord, we want to pray for this this cancer situation. Just pray for healing. And uh, the desire of our heart clearly is for a, a, a full and complete recovery. And uh, yet, Lord, I think we could pray with Matt that your will be done and that you be glorified. Lord, I want to pray for Matt and his wife and his family that they are worshiping right now. Um, and that it's sweeter than it's ever been. Lord, I pray for his time preparing to preach. And uh, as he's going through chemotherapy, that you give him the strength to stand and deliver. And I pray that his word finds purchase. Your word finds purchase. His messages find purchase at this time where people are especially tuned in to what you're doing in and through him. Lord, we pray for this church, the village, and just this, this shocking growth that you've given this church. We pray for quality. I think we could pray with the leadership of that church for quality, for true commitments, um, for relationships that engage each other, for meaningful church. Lord, that you'll guard that church as you would guard ours from um, people just attending to something, um, but that we could truly be members of one another. Lord, we're thankful for your name, your renown, and your fame among and through uh, the village and through Matt and his family. Lord, in these next few minutes for Crosspoint, I want to just pray for clarity in really uh, what seems like a mess on a difficult topic at that. On a snowy morning, it's cold, where a lot of your people have not, uh, not made it in. Lord, I pray that your message will find its way to DVD players or CD players or MP3 players or whatever it takes passed out by the people that have engaged this morning, encouraged by the people that have engaged this morning is a message that Greenville needs to hear, a message that Crosspoint needs to hear. Lord, I pray for the people that are here this morning. I pray for an attentiveness that's beyond anybody in here. I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to people's hearts and guide us into the truth this morning. We turn this time over to you. Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Beginning in John 15, that's kind of home base for us. I'll begin John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Last week, we engaged a topic for the first time as a church, for the first time in my lifetime of sermons, hearing sermons, a topic that has a name, it's called apostasy. You see it right here in front of us, even if it's an unfamiliar word, you can see it at work right here in front of us, where he says, every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Last week we engaged this for the first time, and looked at it through the lens of Israel, and I think we engage what's likely the most discreet form of apostasy. The apostasy of that of Israel was that they were religious and pious, and they had a zeal for God, but they tried to earn their righteousness. And so doing, they did not submit to God's righteousness, which is and who is the person and work of Jesus Christ. They proved the alarming truth 
that you can be apostate and to use some current slang, be all up in this house. You can be apostate and be all up in the people of God and not really be of the people of God. You can be potentially on every committee. You can greet at every door. You can give it every offering. You can visit every sick person. You can sing every baritone line of every hymn in the hymnal, which I can do, and yet be apostate through works righteousness. The nation of Israel proved it. The language of the prophets was that they had many sacrifices. The language of the prophets is you are trampling my courts. We're talking about lots of religion, but no worship. The question that I hope you engaged last week, that if you haven't listened to it, you need to last week. Listen to last week's. The question, the important question to engage is, if you are asked about your salvation, would you cl- declare unequivocally, clearly, Christ is my righteousness? If there's anything added to that, then you're in grave danger. Grave danger of being an apostate who's all up in this house. It's easy to do. Today we're going to deal, though, with the more obvious form of apostasy. The kind that just absolutely walks away from the faith. This picture here in John 15, 2 and 6, this picture of being in Christ, this branch that's once in Christ but does not bear fruit and is cut away and is gathered up and thrown into the fire is a picture of someone who was part of the people of God. It's a picture of someone who once was in Christ. As I've taken in the context of this passage, it's arrested me who he's talking to. Now, he's talking to us 2,000 years later through John's recording this event. But he's speaking to the 11. Judas has left the setting at this point. They're either in the Garden of Gethsemane or they're on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. But they're speaking to the 11, Jesus is. He's speaking to 11 dudes that have left everything to follow Christ. Take this in. Consider that he's speaking to 11 men who've left their boats, their version of work trucks. They left their cubicles, the tax collectors. They've left everything. They've left families. They left loved ones. They've abandoned all, capitalized all, to follow him. It seems like this warning would sort of be unnecessary if you really think about it. Jesus is warning them to not fall away. He's warning them, challenging them, that you need to abide. If you don't bear fruit, you will be cut away. It seems unnecessary to warn these guys. (laughs) This is the cream. Yet Jesus, in his final hours before he goes to the cross, warns these men, these committed, faithful 11, about falling away and the dire consequences. We've got to take in the weight of this. He's warning those who've given up everything to follow him, to stick with him, or they would cease to bear fruit, and they would be cut away and thrown into the fire. And that means what it sounds like it means. If this doesn't alarm you, then we've got to consider it yet again. Let's contextualize it for us. Imagine someone who's gone to the mission field. Maybe you know someone, a friend or a family member or an acquaintance, or maybe you did that. Imagine someone who's left the states and left the American dream. They've gone to the mission field, leaving family and friends and maybe a lucrative profession to start a church in a foreign land. Imagine that person person going and serving faithfully on the field. That person seeing firsthand God's work through them. It's hard to to imagine from our perspective that that person would need a warning. I mean, they're the cream, right? Why bother warning those guys? But I think Jesus would. And I think he has through these words. So us, this side of those who maybe have left everything to follow Christ, can heed this warning as well. That we could be in danger of falling away and being cut away. Because we have to realize, although the church in large part, at least in my experience, has neglected this topic, apostasy happens. 
apostasy happens. Turn to Matthew 13. We're going to go on a journey this morning collecting uh, some facts on the apostate. And I'll go ahead and tell you where we're going to go. We're going to go to Matthew 13. If you want to kind of put a a finger in these pages or a, a sticky note or something. 1 Corinthians 10. 2 Peter chapter 2. And then the book of Hebrews. You can just be ready. Parked in Hebrews chapter 3. We start in Matthew 13. I'm just wrestling with this question. Why is Jesus giving these guys this issue airtime in his final hours before going to the cross? Look at Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Let me give you an overview of this whole chapter. This whole chapter is what really could be summarized as a bunch of parables on the kingdom of God. There are a bunch of stories that help you understand how things work. So let's go here and see how things work in regards to the kingdom of God. Chapter 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, here's the first parable. A sower went out to sow. This is some farmer casting seed out in the field. They didn't have combines and all kind of high-speed equipment. They had their hands in a bag. And he sowed, and some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds, though, fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds, though, fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Look over at verse 18. He explains the parable. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. He's explaining four different types of hearts in the kingdom of God. And the first heart is the seed would be the word of the truth, the gospel, the message about Christ crucified and risen, everything that's pointed to it and since is sown on the heart. But you know how a path is. Man, that ground is hard packed. There's no way for a seed to find purchase in there. And the birds come and they pick it up. And that bird, the picture there is Satan. And that person hears the gospel and they're like, whatever. I'm out of here. Here's the second type of soil. As for what was sown on rocky ground or rocky soil, this is the one who hears the word and watch immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And yet when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. I've seen this person before in seven years, and I've seen this person a number of times. Apostasy happens. And it happens all up in Crosspoint Fellowship too. I've seen this person that gets so excited and so lathered up at the preached or taught word. They're there every time the doors are open. And they're taking notes, and they're sending emails, and they're calling, and man, I want to talk about this. I want to process this. And yet then they fade away over time. Things happen. For example, in this case, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, say, for example, a young man's been hearing the word. He's been hearing it week by week. He's been eating it and dining on it. But let's say he gets a girlfriend, and his girlfriend says, hey, let's move in together and play married. And he sees the word that says, no, we're not to defile the marriage bed. And then he says, "Uh uh-oh, persecution or tribulation on account of the word, that would cramp my style. I'm out of here. It happens. It happens. Here's the third soil. For what was sown among thorns, this is one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfaithful. A third type of soil I've seen before as well. For the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches. Man, you guys that work at L3, I'm going to tell you what, that is a hard place to work. And I don't even work there. I can see it through you. And I see the demands placed on you. And I know the projects, the heavy load of projects that you guys face all the time. And it may be the high school. It may be Rubbermaid. It may be Raytheon. It could be whatever. The heavy loads that are placed on y'all all the time. And what I've seen time and time again, often, In the life of this church, 
is people that come in and they hear the word, but then they have an opportunity for overtime, working Saturdays, and then they get tuckered on Sundays. And then before long, they can work on Sundays. And the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches choke out what that person once heard. And that's apostasy. And then there's that fourth type of soil, which we hope we all are. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. These passages that we're going to engage this morning, two things I want you to look for. I want you to look for what they, how they warn and what they inform. And this passage informs us about those who become part of the church and who hear the word, who receive the word with joy, who experience life and growth for a time. But those can fall away due to tribulation or persecution, cramping your style when the word intersects with what you want to do, or they can fall away through the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. It's just how the kingdom works. I'm going to tell you what this young pastor not young in age, but young in experience. How this young pastor processed those sort of events. I looked at the seed. Is it the seed's fault? Are we casting a bad seed when that happens? And then I looked at the sower. Is it the sower's fault? Could I do a better job of casting the seed? And then I read this parable and it set me free because it told me how the kingdom of God works. I said, you know what? It's not an indictment against the seed. Keep casting the full, sweet marrow of the word, the milk of the gospel. Keep casting the true seed, knowing that some will receive it with a flurry of activity and later be drawn right back into the world. It's how the kingdom happens. It's how the kingdom works. It's not an indictment against the seed, and it's not an indictment against the sower. Apostasy happens. Next, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As you're turning there, I want to give you some background or some context, what Paul has been talking about with the Corinthian church. In chapter 8, he's been dealing with food offered to idols. If you ever wondered how to kind of get a sense of what the Scripture's saying generally, contextually, look at the little titles there. That's what it says, food offered to idols. That's exactly what he's talking about. And then in chapter 9, he's talking about surrendering his rights. And here's some excerpts. He says, Though I am free from all, Paul, through the work of the gospel, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. He's talking about putting his own desires aside. Whether he eats food offered to idols, whether he eats certain sorts of foods or drinks certain sorts of things, if they cause another to stumble, he said, I'm not going to participate. He says, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel. And then in verse 27, he says, I discipline my body. I buffet my body and I keep it under control. Listen, a guy that preached and planted churches says, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. We're talking about a Medal of Honor winner right there. We're talking about the bronze star of church planting. We're talking about a hero of the faith. Saying, man, I scrutinize these sort of issues in my own life. I put myself under. I buffet my body. I put my own desires aside lest I be disqualified. Lest I apostatize. Let's import our word so that we know what we're talking about here. And then he starts warning the Corinthians based on that context. In, verse, in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, I want you to know, Corinthians, brothers, that our fathers, watch, He appeals to the Israelites. He said, Our fathers, the Israelites, were all under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Watch. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. And in other words... Most of them apostatized. That would be like Paul showing up and preaching to the church at Cross One Fellowship and saying, most of you will apostatize. He's not saying that's going to happen with the Corinthians, but he's warning them. He's saying, it happened with the Israelites. 
That's what he's saying. These guys were neck deep in the blessings of God, yet they, they were in the vine. But yet they were cut away because they did not bear fruit. Now watch verse 6. He says, now these things took place as examples for us, Corinthians, cross point fellowship, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example for you. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, including the preacher, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Man, I'm looking at passages like this, and I'm swallowing hard when a guy like Paul is saying, lest I be disqualified. I hear a temperature and a tone from him and a disposition from him that I don't hear from many current-day Christians. This consideration that we could indeed be disqualified. And Paul appeals to the Corinthians with the example of the Israelites. And he shows us some things about the apostate. He shows us that the apostate, in the case of the Israelites, passes through the sea of baptism. And that would be true of the church as well. You pass through the watery ordeal of baptism. And the Israelites eat spiritual food and drink spiritual drink that is Christ. That's what we do every week right over here. Yet most did not inherit the blessings of God. Apostasy happens. Look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2. This is a passage warning about false teachers and false prophets. And I'm going to pick up in verse 9. Peter says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He starts contrasting the godly with the unrighteous. And to keep the unrighteous in the case that he's speaking of, he's speaking specifically of false teachers and false prophets and teachers. To keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And here's, here's a picture of the unrighteous. They're bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, these unrighteous ones, are like irrational animals. Creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. And they will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the, as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. You know what that's talking about? It's talking about people who are all up in the church, false teachers, false preachers potentially, false prophets who are feasting with you week by week by week. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They've followed the way of Balaam. Look down in verse 17. They're waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, watch, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. God has a special place in hell for these ones. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom or maybe an abundant life, happy life, your best life now. They promise some riches. They make these worldly promises that these people should be ashamed of. And God has a special place in hell for them. They promise them freedom, but they, themsel they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, 
Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last states become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is speaking of apostates who are also false teachers. Apostates who continue to live on in the church, casting a message week by week, or pushing an agenda week by week that is not from our God. And here's what Peter says about these jokers. This is the craziness of this fact collecting that we're getting on the apostates. He says they have escaped the defilements of the world. Verse 20. They've escaped the defilements. In verse 20 also, he says that they know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In verse 21, it says that they know the way of righteousness. And it says that they've lost something more than one who never knew him. They had something more than the pagan who doesn't know God at all. When they come into the church, they are swimming in God's blessings like the nation of Israel was. And the case is worse for them than it was in the first place if they'd never known him at all. And God has a special place reserved for them in hell. Apostasy happens. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. If you don't think apostasy shows up in current day church, then you are naive. And that's a dangerous place to be. Hebrews chapter 3. I want to look at three different passages in Hebrews on apostasy. The first is in chapter 3 verse 12. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers. He's writing this to a church. Writing this to believers, Jewish believers. says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It's been a long time since I've heard that from a pulpit. been a long time since anybody's warned me from the pulpit about falling away. Unfortunately, what's, happened, what's happening most often is just kind of a stroking and encouragement. It's all good. But the writer of the book of Hebrews says, be careful, brothers. This is a neglected warning in the church. It's not seeker sensitive. It's not seeker friendly. It's just necessary because apostasy happens. Apostasy happens. Look across the page in chapter 6. The writer of Hebrews has just been engaging this church or this group of churches because they're still drinking milk. They haven't graduated to eating the meat of the word. And he's charging them they need to grow up to maturity And then in verse 4, he says, It's impossible to restore again to repentance those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. I hope that sounds familiar to you from John chapter 15. I hope the language sounds familiar to you. There's a description of what this is like for those who are once in the vine. Verse 4, they have been enlightened. Verses 4 and 5, they've tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted the word of God. And they've participated in the powers of the future age. Verse 4, they are partakers of the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, they receive the heavenly blessing like rain. Yet they become apostate and they're crucifying Christ all over again and holding him in contempt. Apostasy happens. Look at chapter 10. It's the last one. 
beginning in verse 26. It says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Let's just take that in for a second. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving, if you go on and move in with your girlfriend after knowing that it's God's, not God's best for you, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You know what that means? That means the cross does not apply to you anymore. When you deliberately say, God, up yours, I'm doing it my way. Cross is not for you anymore. And the baptism that escorted you into the people of God becomes your curse. It becomes the reason that God has a special place designed for you in hell. When we go on sinning deliberately, no, God, we're doing it my way. No, thanks. My way is going to trump your way. He says, there's no longer a sacrifice for your sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse then do you think if someone who who thumbs their nose at the law, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who thumbs their nose at God? spurns the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is apostasy through deliberate sin. I will not repent from this, God. I'm doing it my way. My way trumps your way. One of the things you've got to collect too on the facts of the apostate here is from verse 29 that this apostate was once sanctified by the blood of the covenant. That'll shock you. Look at it. Verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? We're talking about somebody who was in the vine, who was neck deep in God's blessings. But they, through deliberate sin, are spurning the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenant, and outraging the Spirit of grace. These are alarming facts about apostasy. They are alarming considerations of the apostate. We're going to process this a little bit, but I want you to just sit back and listen for a minute. I want to show you a visual aid, an illustration of the apostate. The man named Saul. He was the first king of Israel in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel. Don't turn there, just listen. Listen to how the story unfolds for this man named Saul. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome lad. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Dashing. Chapter 10, verse 9. Samuel has just anointed him king. In verse 9, it says, When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. God gave Samuel, or Saul, a new heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him. Here are the connections with Hebrews chapter 6. Tasted of the Spirit, enjoyed the presence of God. God gave Saul another heart. God gave him the Spirit of God as it rushed upon him. And then in chapter 11, verse 5, Saul gets word about the Ammonites surrounding Jabesh. And it says, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What's wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh that were surrounded by the Ammonites. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers. Sounds pretty strong. 
Come here, bring me those yoke of oxen. How many oxen in a yoke? Two, four, maybe? Give me your knife, your pocket knife, your Swiss army knife. I'm about to cut them into pieces and send them all over the nation of Israel. And we're about to gather up the troops and about to go kick some serious behind. Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people when they got a chunk of oxen in the mail. And they came out as one man. And when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Helps on the way. Therefore the men of Jabesh said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you. And you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp of the Ammonites in the morning watch. And struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Man, Saul's got some amazing stuff happening to him. He's got a new heart. He's got the Spirit of God on him, rushing on him. He's got this strength that's beyond any one man. That's ability to lead people. He's whipping the Ammonites. Here's another picture of Saul in verse 12. And then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? There were these dudes that were coming up against Saul when he was anointed king, saying, Who's this joker? And after Saul led the troops to whip the Ammonites, someone turns to Samuel and said, Now, who was that again? Who was that that was saying Saul wasn't all that? Why don't we bring the men that we may put them to death? But watch Paul or Saul. Saul says, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. There's mercy. There's fruit of the Spirit showing up right there. He's got a new heart. The Spirit has rushed on him. In two different places we see it. We see fruit of the Spirit showing up there. Some awesome things are happening in Saul's life. But then if you know the rest of the story, things start to unfold. By chapter 15, the Lord came to Samuel and said, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And then by chapter 16, verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. You see that? The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, Saul unravels. Every time you see him, he's carrying his spear around and he's throwing his spear at David. He's throwing his spear at his own son, Jonathan. He's throwing his spear at his servants. He thinks everybody's conspiring against him. He starts out the book with a new heart, humble, small in his own eyes, 1 Samuel tells us. And by the end of it, he's a monster in his own eyes. And he's throwing his spear at everybody. Everybody's against me. By the end of the story, with the spirit removed from him, he's dining with the witch of Endor. Instead of dining with Samuel and with God. And at the very last scene in the story, he's falling on his own sword. Fighting the Philistines. You want to know what apostasy looks like? Look at Saul. It's a tragedy, and it's a tragedy that happens. If you've been in the church any period of time, you've observed apostasy. If you haven't, you haven't been involved enough. If you've been in the church any period of time, you know this tragedy. You know what heartache I'm talking about. Someone comes to Christ and is white hot for him. White hot. They're sharing their testimony and they're praying every time they can pray. They're gathering every time the people of God gather. Every time the Bible is open, they're all up in there. They volunteer to teach kids or to greet or to serve in some way. And then over time, their zeal fades. Either their zeal for Christ and enjoyment of God's people is replaced with a root of bitterness and a spirit of division. And they stay up in the house, unfortunately. Or they just start to fade away. And they leave. Sundays goes by and I sit with Christy over lunch. And I say, did you see so-and-so this morning? Like, no. I didn't see them. They think, oh, they must have been traveling. They must have had somebody sick. That happens. 
And then three weeks later, I still hadn't seen so-and-so. And there they pop up on the fourth Sunday. And they're there for another Sunday. But then they're gone again for three or four. And then it's seven or eight that they're gone. And then it's months. And then they won't return phone calls. They won't return emails. And then you see them in Walmart. And you have to do the duck and play like you didn't see them. It happens. Apostasy happens. This whole thing can take place over months. It can take place over moments. I spent a period of about six months walking with a guy, sharing the gospel with him, unpacking the word with him, showing him what it meant to follow Christ, the cost of discipleship. And then on the day that he was baptized was the last day I ever saw him. I baptized him. It's the last time I ever saw him. He wouldn't return another phone call. Never darkened the door of a church as far as I know. That's apostasy. It happens. It happens. His baptism, his escort into the people of God became his curse. And it turned up the temperature on hell. And there's a special place reserved for those who once tasted it but have spurned the Son of God. No thanks. I'll do it my way. I have a side note here in my notes that I think I will engage. I think there's a possibility of something called apostasy through church hopping. Usually lasts two or three years. Long enough for somebody to rub you the wrong way. Maybe it's the pastor. Maybe it's one of the elders. Maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it's a small group leader. Maybe it's the person sitting next to you. Or maybe just everybody in general. And the thrill is gone. And then you're off to the next place. And it's hard to imagine, like I shared last week, I love David Ferguson's quote. Can we live from the dark row of the church, unknown, knowing nobody, searchable by nobody, accountable to nobody, and profess to be walking in the light? Is that possible? And if so, for how long? It's a possibility that you can treat church like a fad diet. Have you tried that new diet? I lost 15 pounds, but it didn't work for me because I put on 20. So I'm off to the next diet until it stops working for me. Then I'm off to the next place and off to the next place. And I wonder if there's an apostasy through church hopping. Whatever the case is, apostasy happens. And as you read about what the apostate has or had, you've got to wonder if you're not the apostate whose love could grow cold. That's what I wonder as I study these passages. I don't sit back on flower beds of ease and say, man, I sure am glad that's not me. Not when I hear a guy like Paul considering that I could be disqualified. You've got to consider with Paul that your faith could be shipwrecked. You've got to consider that you could hear the words, I never knew you. That's a reality. Many, in fact, will. How arrogant of us to think that we won't. To never consider the possibility. These are considerations that are also hard to deal with. I think that's why they're often neglected, but I think they're healthy. And I think they're an appropriate part of the journey of faith. They must send us to the answer. The only answer that Jesus gives the disciples, the eleven, to abide. I gave you an image last week that I want to remind you of. A story I was reading to Daniel last Friday about a man named Naaman. He was the leader of the Syrian troops, and he had leprosy. And he had a servant girl who was from Israel. And she told him, said, you need to go see Elisha in Samaria, because he will heal you of your leprosy. And Naaman does what, what she recommended. He goes to Samaria and knocks on the door. And here's how the account goes he came with his horses and chariots 
all the fanfare that a leader of the troops of Syria would have. He stood at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha sent a messenger to him. A messenger? Is the house that big? It's probably not that big. I mean, that's, that's probably what Naaman's thinking. He sends a messenger to him, and the messenger says, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. I've been to the Jordan, y'all. The Jordan was uber unimpressive. <laughs> I mean, it's no wider than this room, at least in the areas that I was seeing it. And it's a mud hole. It, it's, it's crazy, too. There's so many flies at the Jordan. A buddy of ours that was with us, Kent Jones, some of y'all know him, almost went crazy because of the flies. He got mad at the flies. They're so bad. You, if you stand still, you're going to have a hundred of them on you. I can only imagine what Naaman is thinking. First of all, man, Elisha, you can't even come to the door. Second of all, the Jordan, I've seen the Jordan. It's muddy and they're flies and it's unimpressive. So Naaman was angry and he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over my specific problem. I thought he'd come out and wave his hand over my nose hanging off and it would also go... Are not the Abana and the Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Surely they're better than the old muddy Jordan. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Off to the next church. That's all you got is the muddy Jordan? Man, don't you have smoke machines? Can't you keep me busy every night of the week? Can't you keep my kids out of trouble? Don't you have lights and dancing girls and videos and stuff that makes all this stuff interesting? Can't you wave your hand over my specific problem? All you got is the muddy Jordan? I needed to import you back into that situation and that picture because I want to show you a couple things. You don't have to look, just listen. These passages that I've taken you to, these warning passages, they all have neighbors. Here's the neighbor of the Hebrews 10 passage. If you go on sinning deliberately, you're spurning the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenant, outraging the Spirit of grace. Here's the neighbor, the passage right in front of it. I don't mean nearby. I mean right in front of it. It says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The muddy Jordan? You just want us to show up to church? That's unimpressive. You just want us to gather when the people of God gather? The muddy Jordan, it's God's way that brings healing. Unimpressive. Bunch of flies everywhere. People. <laughs> it's full of people. But it's the muddy Jordan that God has ordained that the people of God are to abide in. Here's some other neighbors. The neighbor to 1 Corinthians 10 is the Lord's Supper. That's what he talks about right next to it. The neighbor to 2 Peter passage, the 2 Peter warning, is the context of true preaching and true teaching. The thing that hopefully we're doing week by week by week by week. The neighbor to Matthew 13 about the parables of the kingdom. Right in front of it. Someone says, hey Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. And he turns to his disciples and his followers and says, these are my mother and my brother." Talking about the people of God. Talking about community. And the neighbor, one of the sweetest neighbors, is in Hebrews chapter 3. The warning that I mentioned is so neglected. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an able, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Watch. But exhort one another every day. 
You mean people just getting up next to each other and encouraging each other? Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the muddy Jordan River. One another's that just bump into you and say, man, I want to encourage you. God is good. You need to be reminded of his goodness and his greatness. You need to be reminded of his grace. In the next verse, we, shall, we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Those are the neighbors to these warnings. If that doesn't scandalize you, it does me. It makes me far less apologetic about saying be part of the people of God. It's God's best. And I make these promises to you. The church, this muddy Jordan, will be ordinary. And Satan, I promise you, will make it seem small and insignificant, even if it's a big church. Stay there a while. And you'll get to know enough people where it'll seem insignificant and small. And then either you'll be on to the next church, or you'll press on in that muddy Jordan in what he's called us to abide in. I make these promises to you about what God has called us to abide in. It will be sloppy. It will be messy. It will be complicated. It will be difficult. But it's his mode of healing our leprosy. It looks like people raging after Christ. Usually. With occasionally reveling in Christ. Usually raging. Sometimes reveling. But it's relentless. And it doesn't quit until the abider passes into glory. That's how you can know if you're in Christ. I've shared with people before, it troubles them. I've had so many conversations about this over the last seven years. I think probably five or six times in the last seven years I've shared with people that I think I'm saved. I just hear people go, if he's not absolutely sure... How can I be absolutely sure? I share with him, it's like the old man. It says, you know, they asked the old man, said, hey, old man, you lived here all your life? And he says, no, not yet. <laughs> if Jesus is going to sit with the disciples, the faithful 11 that have left everything to follow him and warning them about potentially falling away, if Paul's going to say that I could be disqualified... I better hear that warning too. And I haven't lived the rest of my days yet. If I spend the next 15, 20 years here at Cross Point Fellowship preaching relentlessly week by week by week by week by week, and then I walk away from the faith, guess what I am? I'm apostate. And God has a special place in hell for me. A special place in hell for me. John says this is a reality. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, They went out from us because they were not really of us. And I hope you've been paying attention to all these things, these characteristics of those, the apostate. It's shocking. The apostate was truly in the vine. The apostate receives the word with joy, experiences life, growth for a time. They pass through the sea of baptism. They eat spiritual food and drink spiritual drink, that is Christ. They escape the defilements of the world. They know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They know the way of righteousness. They've been enlightened. They taste the heavenly gift, the word of God and the powers of the future age. They're partakers of the Spirit. They receive heavenly blessing like rain. And shockingly, they're sanctified by the blood of the covenant. Man, the only thing we can rest in is abiding in Christ today. And exhorting one another while it's still today. You can find assurance as you're swimming in the muddy Jordan. You don't sit around wondering, am I in, am I out, am I in, am I out? Because you're neck deep in the Jordan. You got muddy water, it's bumping your nose. You're bumping into other people saying, it sure is muddy, isn't it? But it's good. He's healing us. Stay in the simple, unimpressive, muddy Jordan of the church. Let me pray. God, this is such a difficult, difficult, challenging reality, this thing, apostasy. 
Lord, I pray that it arrests us all with the need to abide. And Lord, I'm thankful that your elect will abide to their very last breath. I'm thankful that you will not lose any of your sheep. I'm thankful that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray this, studying this issue of apostasy as we all collectively swallow hard, as we all, with the songwriter, beg that your grace bind our wandering hearts to you. Lord, I pray that we run to Jesus and that we abide in him and we abide in what you've given us to abide in. We trust you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to share a psalm as part of our Lord's Supper. It's a psalm of a picture of one of God's people. It's pretty cool. It's one of my favorite psalms. I was talking with Steve Roberts just a few days ago, and Steve said the same thing. It's a beauty. Psalm chapter 73. Psalm 73. It's a psalm of Asaph to watch what unfolds to this man of God or unfolds in his life. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's watching the the rich, and he almost stumbled. He almost slipped. Because he's looking at the rich, and he's looking at them saying, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these, these rich are wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Ugh. It doesn't say that, but it could. Because what he says next, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean. All in vain I have washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken. Unlike them who are never stricken. I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Ugh. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Then I climbed in the muddy Jordan and I got clarity. The sanctuary of God for Asaph would have been the temple, the gathering of the people of God. I climbed into what God had given them. He's basically what he's saying. I climbed in what God had given me to abide in. I nearly slipped, but I climbed in what he gave me to abide in. I went to the sanctuary of God, and then I got some clarity and discerned therein. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them to fall to ruin. Ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. I can see it now. See how close he was to being the apostate? I almost bailed on this whole thing. But then I got in the muddy Jordan and I got clarity. And here's the beauty. 
It's coming. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. And here's what God does in this work of abiding, this work of perseverance. He says, you hold my right hand, God. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? Who needs the riches? I almost slipped. Man, I started losing my way, but then I got in that muddy Jordan, and now I got some clarity, and now I'm like, who, who needs anything other than God? Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire but you. Though my flesh and my heart may fail, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Man, he got some clarity in that Jordan. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge here abiding that I may tell of all your works. It's not fancy. Say, that's all you got? That's all we got. Abiding. Like Asaph, held by our God in his mighty right hand. As we take the supper together, my urgent burden for myself and for you is that as we take this cup and this bread, is that we can sing with Asaph, whom have I in heaven but you? You're the best I got. You're all I got. You're all I need. Let's take that together. It's uh, one of the things I think is troubling for me in gauging last week's message and this week's message and preaching it in this context is, is um, it's just such a pervasive thought that if you've had some sort of experience that you're good and it's so easy to trust in that experience, trust in that event maybe or trust in that period of life where you may have had flurry of activity. I mean, you can look at the list, the list of what the apostate had. And hopefully that would cause you to go, wait a second. I got to reevaluate. Just because I've had some major experience doesn't mean that I'm in Christ. The one, the ones who will be his in eternity will stick with it till their last breath. That's the marker. That Hebrews 3 passage. If you want to know if you're in Christ, you won't quit. You'll have times where you almost stumble, like Asaph. And guess what? You'll have times where you will stumble. But you'll see his big mighty right hand picking you back up and drawing you right back into the muddy Jordan. There are lots of people in our context that say, man, I love Jesus, but I just kind of got, I'm turned off to the church. I got no use for the church. And I say, okay, Naaman, go on back to Syria with your nose hanging off your face. You don't want to be healed? Go on back. That's what God has ordained for his people to abide in the church. And we're not talking about just kind of an idea. The church is made up of people, people that stink sometimes. We talked to Scott recently, and Scott Sutton, and he is going to be, uh, we're going to be recognizing him as an elder soon. I was working out with him the other day out of Brad's barn. We have a little gym set set up there. We call it the Barn of Pain. And we were working out in the Barn of Pain. We were talking about his ordination. And I said, man, the bride is awesome. She can be really homely sometimes. But she's better than she is, than she is bad. And you'll love her. And man, I love her. She's hard and she's mean sometimes. (laughs) And she can be ugly. But man, she's sweeter than she is ugly. And that's who Christ is coming back for. Is the church. If you have friends or family members or people that you work with that say, man, I love Jesus. I got no use for the church. Then you need to come get a copy of this sermon. Or take them online. And say, brother... You're in grave danger. You need to get back in the Jordan. 
You need to get back into abiding what he's told us to abide in. This morning as we take the Lord's Supper, we're doing just that. Let's abide together in something he's given us to abide in. Let's take the supper together enjoying uh, the righteousness that we have absolutely and completely outside of us in Christ. Let's sing. As you can imagine, when um, the pastor's preaching on apostasy, we don't have a large library of apostasy songs. Um, and so, uh, but there's lots on perseverance and needing God every day. And so as we sing this last song, I encourage you to connect the dots, to, to see that we're singing about persevering and we need God and we pour our hearts to him so that he can give us what we need to glorify him rightly. Um, and see that in light of the realities that we've heard this morning, that it's easy to, to go through those motions for a long time and fall away. But we need him every moment. His mercy is new every morning for a reason. So connect those dots as we uh, persevere and uh, sing in spirit and in truth. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for the blood of Jesus that covers us and cleanses us from all sin. We're thankful that, um, that you do hold us in your mighty right hand, that you keep us close, that we have something to walk in, to abide in. Pray that you'll find us faithful, committed, um, stirring each other up by way of reminder exhorting each other while it's today, engaging each other in things that really matter, and in quality commitments on the journey together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for our Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.